Welcome to the Do One Better podcast, where every week I focus on philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi, and I hope you'll enjoy the podcast. Keep on listening if you want to improve the world. It is my privilege to welcome on board a friend of mine who I've known for quite a while, uh, Dorothy Derde. She is formerly the uh, Global Director of Sustainability and Social Impact at McKinsey & Company. So she was there for 10 years, recently left to take on some advisory roles elsewhere, and um, and it's a trustee at Earthwatch as well. Welcome on board. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're up to these days and your career in this space? Sure, wonderful. And so I'm a mother, a sustainability professional, and an impatient optimist. And that's after the uh, the Gates, Bill and the Gates Foundation blog, um, which I find a really interesting concept of impatient optimism. And as you mentioned, I've just left McKinsey, where I worked on on sustainability and social impact topics for just under a decade. And first, helping the firm to shape its client offer in this field. And then in the last six years, building and implementing the firm's own sustainability and social impact strategy. And over that time, McKinsey's approach really evolved into considering sustainability and and our contribution to society as a strategic imperative. And it became part of their overall narrative and what this firm really stands for. So that's a small little job you had there. A, a small little job. <laughs> well, and we we did some we did some great things. And McKinsey is a wonderful place, and I'm so grateful and excited about having had uh, so much time there and learned so much. Um, just to kind of tell you about a few of the things that I'm proud of having been involved in. So one is the strategy work which we did on our role in society, which led to the creation of our first global nonprofit okay. and a program called um, Generation, which tackles youth employment um, or youth unemployment and makes sure that more youth gets employed really from the realization that so many people are out of jobs and are unemployed and on the other hand employers can't fill the roles that they have available right so how do you kind of crack that nut so that was absolutely fascinating another one was doubling down on our responsible business practices Um, especially we did a whole review of our environmental footprint strategy and became the first professional services firm to join RE100 and commit to 100% renewable energy uh, use in our um, scope one and and two emissions. So absolutely fascinating to be able to do that and to be able to do that at a firm like McKinsey. Yeah, it's no small feat. So where are we now? So I know it's um, 2019. Uh, We have the Sustainable Development Goals uh, active right now, Uh, 17 goals for the year 2030, uh, anything from hunger and education and health to climate and life below uh, water and above water and everything in between. What's the state of affairs right now with sustainability? It's difficult to, to open up a newspaper without reading about climate change. Are we feeling optimistic about things and, uh, and where we're heading? And are these sustainable development goals likely to be achieved in in the next 10 years, which is a very short horizon? Wow, so that's very many questions in in one. Um, Very big question. So uh, let me maybe start by giving you what I think is the simplest and probably clearest and most powerful definition of sustainability for me. And it is enough 
for all forever. Um, and that's a kind of simplified version from you know the definition that was given around sustainable development and meeting our needs um, in a way that also allows future generations to meet uh, their needs. Okay. Um, but so so that's that's kind of simply what it is about, right? Ensuring um, that there is enough for all forever. Um, now, the sustainable development goals or the global goals that they're also referred to, they're really, they kind of provide the compass and a new model for growth. And so they're a very, very, very powerful framework that can really guide us. Um, they're, not, they're not just a set of targets. They really are, you know, an ambition, a compass, a call to action and all of those things. So right. I think they are very powerful. Um, and they're also very necessary because I think we are really uh, at this point in time, uh, 2019, at an, an, an inflection point or a tipping point and a, a nearly kind of reaching points of no return um, where where damage is done and, and, and it will be harder and harder to reverse it. And there's a, um, a very nice quote uh, by a, a German economist, Rudiger Dornbusch, who says um, that crises or crises usually take longer than you expect uh, to be made. But then once they're there, happen much faster um, than you were expecting. Um, so and I think that's that's what's happening. So for me, especially on environmental sustainability and on climate change, the, the picture is pretty grim. And, you know, our way of life over this past few generations has radically reshaped the planet. Um, you know, if you think carbon emissions, there are nowhere near a trajectory that gets us to a 1.5 or a 2 degree pathway. We're more on a kind of 3 to 4 degree warming trajectory right now. You must have seen the uh, report of the UN uh, Intergovernmental Panel on, Panel on Climate Change, um, really saying if we want to limit climate change to 1.5 degrees we've got 12 years the window is closing and even at 1.5 degrees if we do manage to get there that still sees sea levels rising to you know nearly half a meter probably by 20 by 2100 um it still sees so much of our coral reefs disappearing etc so this is this is very grim um at the same time biodiversity losses and, and the extinction of species is happening now at i think it's hundred to a thousand times faster than natural um, uh, rates and right. so you know we're getting to the sixth extinction so it, it, it it's pretty dim so this is all serious stuff and as the father of two daughters and I know you're a mother as well um, not exactly uplifting thoughts as we think about the future for our kids and their kids not exactly uplifting thoughts and then I, and and this is the other thing about this right so all of these all of these numbers, in a way, mask the reality of the extremes. And you know, you and I uh, will be fine, Alberta, and your your two kids will be fine, and Josephine will be fine. But this is really unevenly affecting the people in the global south and the poor. Right. And you know, those are the people who are disproportionately affected, who are in the areas that will be high, more more severely affected, but also you know have less capacity to adapt to the new realities and to build up the resilience and so you know mass migrations mm -hmm. uh, disturbances in harvests etc those those are things that will um, affect the world in a very uneven way and that's right. from a societal point of view that is really a drama and a disaster that's an interesting point I was going to ask you about the dichotomy or tensions between the d developing world and the developed world 
I know that in terms of emission standards and health and safety, uh, environmental concerns, there's a regulatory framework in Western Europe, North America, again, trying to really improve and change behaviors for the better so that we're, we're impacting the environment around us a lot less. And a lot of times you read about developing economies, some of these powerhouses, whether it's China or Brazil, and, um, and comments along the lines of, well, yes, you guys in the developed world have had the luxury of tearing things apart for quite a while, and now you have the luxury of behaving a little bit more amiably towards, to, towards the environment. We, we're, you know, we're still developing. What is the dynamic between the developing world, developed world, and the reality or viability of adhering to, let's say, quote-unquote, best practice in reducing carbon emissions and being friendly towards the environment? Well, the reality, as you know, is very complex. Mm. Um, and this is, in a way, I have a dislike for the us and them type of thinking because we are all in this together and this is a global responsibility and a global accountability. But obviously the situation is very different in different um, mm -hmm. regions. And yes, as you say, you know, uh, population growth is happening much faster in parts of Africa, for example. The people entering into the middle class, as millions and millions of people, is happening in China what does that mean for diets, etc. So there are uh, huge, huge challenges. After all, we are still more of the problem because we are still the ones who use much more material per capita and emit much more. But yes, of course, there is. this is not a question about taking anyone's rights for development away. What I think it is, is about finding different ways of growing and different ways of doing things and better ways of doing things. Because if you think, for example, about, you know, food, um, we have had the luxury of eating what we wanted, but it hasn't always been healthy diets. So right. we've just, you know, we've had lots of quantity of stuff, uh, but not necessarily the quality that you would require. And so, you know, that's why you get, I think it's 2 billion obese people now. So, you know, something in our food systems has not been right. So how can you do that better? How can you make sure that rising consumer uh, classes and middle classes, um, you know, feed themselves in a different way and ensure that they have a more balanced diet that is healthier and therefore also puts less pressure on their local healthcare systems and yeah. uh, gives them a healthier and better life. How can you uh, ensure that some of the, you know, there's more and more research around the links between you know, consumerism, blind consumerism and mental health. So why not find a way of thinking about these things differently? Um, and some of that is happening, right? So if you think of cars, for example, young mm -hmm. people don't want a car anymore. They want mobility. So right. some of these things are, are happening. And then also the, the realities of, you know, what you see in the cities and in, in some of the parts of Asia, the, there is no such thing as doing, you know, making the mistakes of the past that we have made and hopefully they won't be made. And then in terms of, you were also mentioning, you know, industry and companies. So if companies, what we talk a lot about and what I talked a lot about at McKinsey was, you know, the ways in which you can really drive value from sustainability. So this does not have to be about just complying with local regulations or whatever, but really finding ways of one, you know, safeguarding your license to operate, mm -hmm. two, cutting your costs by using less water, less energy, etc., but also finding new value pools. So there is a 
a business case. And I think that's also one of the interesting things about the Sustainable Development Goals. So there is the um, Better Business, Better World report of the Commission for Business and Sustainable Development, um, Mm -hmm. which Jeremy Oppenheim was very much involved in. So they laid out a $12 trillion business opportunity from the SDGs. That is huge. So that's all opportunities to go after. And it's it's in, I think it's in four main buckets. So there is a lot around food and agriculture. There are huge opportunities around cities. There is lots of things to do around energy and materials and then also around health and well-being. And so these are opportunities like reducing food waste, restoring degraded land, finding new sources of protein, uh, green chemicals, energy storage, all of those things. So those are amazing business opportunities that companies can go after. And I think it's because of that business case. And as a business case, beyond them having to attract talent and safeguarding their license to operate and all of those things. But I think it's that business case that makes me hopeful about the potential of actually achieving them because it makes it makes business sense on top of making moral and human and societal sense. Okay, we're, we're highlighting a whole bunch of opportunities that if I'm entrepreneurial or maybe even running a social entrepreneurial venture or a CEO who's looking for new opportunities, great, I can try to tackle those. Let me play devil's advocate a little bit here. If I'm mm-hmm. the CEO of a blue chip corporate, whether that's here in the UK or in Europe or the States, wherever, I do read these days that, yes, there is a business case that behaving sustainably is good for your bottom line and so forth. But I know a lot of people who would say, yeah, okay, that's nice. I hear it, you know, nice, nice talking points. But in actual fact, if I'm going to behave sustainably, it's because I want my green credentials to be accentuated or I don't want to fall foul of the law and I want to be perceived as a good global citizen. In actual fact, I'm doing it because I think these, I want to comply with these things, but not because I really want to and not because I ultimately think that it's good for the bottom line. What is the reality? I mean, why is it that a CEO should be thinking about sustainability and thinking of it not as a burden, but actually as something that actually makes good business sense? Yeah, so I mean, various directions I can take this. First of all, and there are numerous examples of companies making lots of money and it showing the business sense of sustainability. If you think of, you know, Royal DSM, which is a, a phenomenal company, and they have, I think, it's over 60% now of their revenues coming from solutions that make the world a better place. And one of them, which I think is, is extremely inspiring, and, you know, it's not particularly sexy potentially, but uh-huh. uh, so they have a, a feed additive which reduces the methane from cows belching by I think it's 30 percent I mean that's just absolutely phenomenal Um, so so it's about finding those pockets and finding those pockets you know it's it's nearly not an option or a luxury it's nearly a necessity because so many industries are getting disrupted by by consumer tastes and, and I'll say a bit more about that um, but also by by different ways of doing things you know for circular economy thinking 
And so, you know, whether you're a, a, a utility and suddenly you need to find business models where you make more money by selling less electricity and what that means, or whether you're a, you know, a mobility company or, or, or even, you know, whether you're a pesticide manufacturer and need to start thinking, okay, how do I make myself a resilient company for the future and move from selling a product to selling the service of a healthy land? So, you know, this is... This is this is also an innovation agenda, and and the people who don't believe necessarily in in the sustainability side of things, they do usually believe in the innovation side of things right. and the potential to kind of keep reinventing themselves. But then also, I mean, you know, I was thinking as you were asking this question, Unilever and Heinz Craft. Mm-hmm. So it kind of pays off to be at the right side of things if you look at the share price of both of those companies now, given what was potentially on the cards two years ago. So what happened there? One of the things, and and that gets me back to the point I wanted to make about consumers. So, you know, as a CEO, what should you be looking at? I think there's maybe two things that I, I would mention. It's one, consumers are taking back agency. And that is happening in a way disconnected from a pure sustainability point of view or from whatever you want to call it as a narrow agenda. Clarify what you mean by taking back agency. Yes. So I think there's there's a, there's a really big shift in the behavior of consumers. And we've seen the rise of the... Uh, the conscious, the mindful, the um, the empowered, the emboldened consumer who is b- both better informed because of transparency, but is also take, taking things in their own hands. And um, let me give you three examples. Okay. Um, meat, plastics and money. Mm-hmm. So huge shifts in consumer choices and behaviors motivated by, you know, health, environment, ethics, new technologies, lifestyles, etc. that are very happening very fast and now disrupting companies. So first one is meat. So in the UK, there was some research that Waitrose did. There is now one third of the people in the UK either eat no meat at all anymore or less meat, so are mm-hmm. flexitarian. Mm-hmm. So flexitarian diets have really moved from a niche trend to kind of nearly a mainstream appeal. And it's that's it, people weren't necessarily shouting down the shopping aisles, but they, it's it's happening and companies need to address that. So you know, one of the reasons, uh, you know, many reasons, but one of the reasons that was given for the uh, uh, share price drop um, in, in Kraft Heinz was the fact that they had failed to see the need to adapt to changes in consumer tastes. Right. So I think that's the meat example. In terms of And plastics, I'm one of those people, by the way. I'm one of those people who's consuming less meat, ideally pescatarian, yes, but so occasionally occasionally I'll have a, a burger. But normally speaking, I'll try to have fish and vegetables. Yes. So the, the whole flexitarian movement, it was it was nearly a silent revolution, right? And that but that's about us taking back control and being more conscious and mindful. And I don't know whether you're doing it because of health reasons. I'm doing it for health. I just think you know, I just think let's yeah. try to have a healthier lifestyle and I everything I read about red meat isn't generally favorable other than the taste. And fish is delicious. Well, you've got the Impossible Burger now. (laughs) You know what? I tried the Impossible Burger the other day. Um, I had a chat with uh, Mike Barry, who runs Global Sustainability at at Marks and Spencer's. He he recommended, actually, I take a look at the Impossible Burger and that I go to Honest Burgers. And um, long story short, I tried some of these things out. Uh, Amazing. And, um, well, we digress. But very difficult to tell the difference and delicious. (laughs) (laughs) So... 
Um, so go ahead. Sir. Yeah. Again, this is a, one big digression. Plastics is another instance where consumers have really taken on uh, the lead, and and there's been like a seismic shift nearly in in how they've got involved in this. And you know, it's partly the blue planet effect. But I think what that triggered is an acknowledgement that plastics is like really far more pervasive. It was nearly it was invisible by being so ubiquitous, right. but now people rather than seeing it. As a, as a nuisance, it's become, they've started to see it as a menace. And so people are getting active about plastics and it's triggered nearly every single company that I know to have to think about plastics. You know, obviously in consumer goods uh, and in retail, but you know, nearly everything is packaged and there's plastics everywhere. So a shift in consumer behaviors or consumer attention, it was, it was nearly, I mean, it was a, a, a shock, right? The whole how plastics became such an agenda item so fast. Oh, I mean, the in, last in a good uh, 12, 18 um, months. Exactly. And so, sure, CEOs might not want to think about sustainability or not believe it for their bottom line or whatever, but then plastics come along and consumers take agency and take things in their own hands. And things do need to need to happen. Now, the point um, of plastics, though, is plastics is plastics a topic of conversation today because David Attenborough decided to feature it, and it's one topic that's getting the attention. But there's loads of others of equal importance that are just haven't had David Attenborough pointing a finger at them, or is plastics really? such a distinguishable feature that we need to be focused on? It's a good question. I think, I mean, yes, there are very many topics that we need to be focusing on. For example, you know, if you look at the Stockholm Resilience Institute, we have crossed our planetary boundaries in terms of biodiversity, you know, deforestation, all of... So there's there's lots that you need to focus on. I think why plastic has captured the minds and the hearts of people is, one, it's very tangible, but it's also, it gets really to the heart of consumerism and how we, in just a few generations, have really reshaped our environment. And, you know, it's very man-made, mm-hmm. uh, the whole plastic problem and I think you know it's really that focusing the minds on how sinister and pervasive this thing that we that is very useful so you know I mean the the reason why plastics are so ubiquitous is that it's a great product Um, we just never thought about what the side effects and and what it really meant to put all this plastic into the environment so I think that's why it had captured the minds and obviously Blue Planet helped hugely in focusing the minds and it's not that suddenly there was more science about it or it's not that people before didn't know about the plastics you know getting trapped in animal stomachs and all of those things but I think it really changed how we viewed plastics and suddenly it became kind of nearly a a personification of this lifestyle right. that we have created and how the Anthropocene has kind of really reshaped our environment. Right. But no, it's definitely not the only topic that we should address. <laughs> if only. <you> know. <laughs> Money, I think, is another one where where consumers are becoming much more conscious and empowered and emboldened and mindful. So you, you often read about how we're at the cusp of the biggest intergenerational transfer mm-hmm. of wealth um, and how over the next, uh, I don't know, one or two decades, trillions and trillions of wealth will exchange hands from our parents and us, I guess, to the uh, the Generation X and uh, millennials and, and all of them. And they invest in a different way. So some of the research was like, I think it was, you know, over 80 percent 
cite that when they want to invest their money, they want to focus on ESG impact as a central right. goal. So environmental and social and government uh, governance aims. They think of money and values in a much closer way. So there again, it's like consumers, you know, taking ownership. And, you know, I think in the decades before this last one, the consumer was often stupid. We just took on whatever we were fed. I mean, I don't know about you, but I definitely feel there is a real change inside yeah. guys. I hope the next one um, where this will happen and will kick off is in fashion, where right. there's already a lot more around transparency, etc. But then there are also trends that are going in the wrong direction, like the whole fast fashion uh, trend. So, you know, I'm not sure how that will uh, will pan out. The everyday products that people buy here and there every day, and fashion being one of those, do have an, an impact on the environment. Tell me a little bit more about that, because obviously, I think most people don't really think of it like that. Again, it's very complex, right? But it stretches from everything from the, you know, the amount of water that is needed to make your cotton T-shirt or your pair of jeans to the uh, microplastics that get into the environment and the microfibers right. to obviously the, the social element. And, and you, you'll remember the, the collapse of the Rana Plaza uh, building in Bangladesh. So there is... I think that's it's a broader trend of of people having to reconnect to our world. So, you know, we can we're reconnecting with food. Right. I mean, you know, food doesn't just come from supermarkets. It comes from somewhere. And, you know, we mostly live in cities, but it's usually not well apart from if you get into the the um the kind of vertical agriculture and all of that um it usually comes from from the land outside the city so you know reconnecting with that reconnecting with what we wear it's not just a product that you buy in the supermarket no there's like a whole supply chain behind it uh, basic ma raw materials that require a lot of water to grow uh, human rights and labor practices that may not be done in the right way etc so we've been sold so much and then I have a whole trend with fast fashion and just there is a bit more consciousness about the impact of this kind of consumerism and that you know you just when you throw away a t-shirt you throw away those liters and liters of water you throw away microfibers and plastics etc so um so as a uh, consumer that's, that's as fun. a consumer is there an easy way to assess what's a good product to buy and what's not a good product to buy in the clothing department stores yeah. because by what you're telling me does that mean i should buy cotton or i shouldn't buy cotton or should i buy polyester or should i not buy it or or should i buy something that's made in bangladesh or should i opt for something made in vietnam or is there anything that one of these consumers that's taking back control should look for on a label or is there no such thing or is the state of affairs such right now that they need to do their their own homework and try to identify supply chains and then ha hope that that they've done the right analysis on that. I mean, what is a consumer, a well-meaning consumer, meant to do? Yes. What are they supposed to do? <laughs> it's a good question. Well, first of all, they're supposed to consume less. Okay. Um, so if you buy less, that's already less of a problem. Right. Um, I think, I, I don't know, I'm not deeply steeped enough in the kind sure. of labeling and transparency, etc. But the whole trend around transparency is obviously going in the right direction. I'm sure there will soon be ways in which you kind of can scan the, the label inside a piece of clothing that you want to uh, buy and, and see exactly how many liters of water went into the production of the raw materials and exactly how much uh, CO2 was emitted in transporting right. it. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure that is coming if it's not there yet. 
And then there is also, I mean, there are really interesting and fascinating things happening also in technology, right? To recycle more of the fibers and kind of break them down again and use them again. So there are solutions, but we also shouldn't just kind of blindly hope on technology saving the day. Um, it, right. it, it is about how our behaviors need to change as well. Now, in terms of having consumers who are better informed and hopefully having the the structure around them so that they do have that information at their at their fingertips without having to do too much legwork on their own, it takes me to another question in terms of how people are investing. A lot of us are aware of BlackRock CEO Larry Fink, who yes. wrote this letter to shareholders about the importance of sustainability and, and so forth. It, it made the headlines everywhere. But if I think about how people are investing, and let's look at that field, there seems to be a great deal of muddiness in terms of the clarity of these terms. So ESG, sustainable investments, ethical investments, impact investing. Impact investing itself has definitions that are, are very different depending on who you're asking what it means. And the guidelines for what constitutes an impact investing uh, opportunity or what is a sustainable investment, again, it, it's, uh, it's very fluid. There they don't seem to be very clear frameworks that are defining these things right now. And, and that then yes. makes it a little bit more difficult, doesn't it, for, for somebody who's well-meaning as an investor to invest. Yes. True, true, uh, definitely. And in, in many ways, this is an emerging market, right? Even if you look okay. at, you know, green bonds, uh, they grew exponentially from, yeah, I think it was like over 75% in one year or something, but they're still a very small fraction of the overall bond market. But that's less obviously about consumers. There is a need and increasingly also a drive to get to a more, a clearer picture, clearer standards, clearer guidelines, clearer terms, etc. around what all this means and obviously there will always be some complexity because it depends on what you really what your lens is right for some people they want investments that are climate compatible for some right. people they want to uh, with their investments you know have social societal impacts at the same level as their financial or societal returns in a way at the same level as their financial returns etc so so there definitely is more clarity needed but i think th i think that's coming mm-hmm and so if I'm the CEO of a leading corporate and everything I read tells me about how I got to get on board and start being sustainable and, and all of this, but having had no experience in that field, what do I do? So does it mean that I need to start bringing in experts from outside? How do I identify what the detrimental impact that my company's having on the environment is? You know, what tools do I grab or who do I bring in to help me understand my positioning in the environmental landscape? and and where I should be heading? Well, it's, it's an interesting question. And, and of course, yes, you know, some external help is, is always good. But I think, I mean, it goes back to, you know, this is not just an isolated field of, oh, let's do the environmental scan or the, you know, SDG scan or the sustainability scan of our company. This is ultimately about the resilience of your business. And I'm sure CEOs are giving a lot of attention to kind of considering the global mega trends in the world, which you know, are all in a way about sustainability, you know, whether it's a growing and aging population or the shift in global growth or technology change and the impact on the industry disruptions and the workforce and global connectivity and geopolitical risk and all of those things, they are all affecting how we do business and sustainability and the need for kind of to rethink the role of business in society. Um, but yes, obviously, I mean, it does make sense to start from like, you know, scanning 
what actually what is my business what what is my supply chain mapping that all out and starting to dig a lot deeper uh, and also what is my my customer or my client base the other interesting thing there uh, is the task force for climate related financial disclosure the tcfd which is voluntary climate related financial risk disclosure and okay. and i think that's so for companies i think the fact that climate change ha- has become less a uncertainty and more of a quantifiable risk that makes it easier to for CEOs to start really thinking about it in a way that they are used to thinking about running a business. And you know what was fascinating? So I was reading this, um, the World Economic Forum, they have an annual global risk uh, report where they survey um, leaders on what they think are the uh, most likely threats in the next 10 years and also the threats with the biggest impact. And, you know, in for last year, for this year rather, Three out of five in one category and four out of five were environment related. So these are the big threats and no CEO can afford to not think about the big threats and how those would affect their business. So it's kind of multiple uh, lenses and angles, even just kind of thinking of, you know, what are the disruptions that are happening in my sector? If you're a car company, the disruptions around EV, around the shift from, you know, uh, cars to mobility, all of those things, the human machine interface, technology changes, etc. They all kind of somehow come back to sustainability. So, you know, you don't necessarily have to use the word sustainability to get a CEO to think about it. But if we're looking at electric cars, for instance, you see more of them, certainly in London, you see them everywhere and you see a lot of the charging points these days. So, you know, it's no mm-hmm. longer a concern of, well, am I going to get stuck without any energy? Pretty easy in London. If you're other parts of the country or other countries, maybe not so much right now, but even the topic of electric cars has a question mark for some people because I've heard this more yep. than once. Somebody saying, yeah, the electric car, that sounds fine, but how do they make that energy? How do they get that electricity? Was it made from traditional carbon fuels? And so what's the state of affairs there? I mean, how is the electricity made? And I have heard the term renewable electricity, for instance, and I think you touched on that. The full process, um, so how the electricity is made is a crucial part of that. But what often happens is, you know, none of these topics are black or white. This Mm -hmm. is not about, you know, this is bad, this is good. It's all a spectrum. And then you also don't want kind of you know, good to be the enemy of perfect in some way. So it's it's about, you know, at least starting to shift the system towards a more sustainable direction. I think it is about getting onto the right path and going in the right direction and always being mindful of the fact that none of this is the panacea and so much more needs to happen. Well, it is encouraging that not only are you and I having this conversation here, but that people are listening to it and that, at least for me, it's difficult to go out and about in my daily life reading what I read or speaking to, to people I speak without thinking about sustainability. It just seems to be prevalent everywhere these days. I think anchoring people's thoughts onto how to be more sustainable is, is a good thing. I know that you and I could have easily have another hour's worth of conversation or more but I think we're going to have to bring you back on board for another episode uh, at some point in the not-too-distant <laughs> future, which would be great. But as you know, the Do One Better podcast is about inspiring people to be more philanthropic and to think more about sustainability and, and social entrepreneurship. And I'm wondering if, if listeners forgot everything we said today, 
but took away one thing, one key takeaway, what do you think that should be? What is it that they should walk away thinking about? Mm -hmm. um, I think I would end with Greta Thunberg because okay. she is such a visionary new leader and such an inspiring person and also you know the consumer of tomorrow and say that this is a crisis we are in a crisis so treat it as one and secondly also what we need is not hope what we need is action and that's action from everyone and everywhere it's not about us and them it's not about you know others not doing what they need to do we are all responsible we are all accountable for this and we can all change our behaviors get involved in different ways reconnect with things so you know you mentioned that i'm a, a trustee at um earthwatch mm -hmm. so they have amazing citizen science programs uh, in naturehood, freshwater watch, etc., where you can you can get involved and start interacting and connecting with nature again, and that is the responsibility for all of us. So let's let's not just hope, let's act. I think that's a good way to uh, to wrap up the episode. Let me ask you: if somebody listening to this podcast today thinks this is an interesting chat. Maybe they have a follow-up question or want to tap your wisdom about something. What's the best way to get a hold of you? Um, LinkedIn would be the best way. For our listeners, just to let you know, we will have episode notes to go along and accompany this podcast, which will cover some of the key points that we discussed today. We'll include some resources and some valuable links as well. So if you want to get a hold of the episode notes, just go to the uh, Do One Better podcast website at liji.org that's l-i-d-j-i.org and you'll be able to get a hold of that and also include her linkedin profile as well so you can you can get a hold of her through there it's been wonderful having you on board for today's episode dorothy really insightful as is always the case every time we uh, we meet to talk about sustainability and i really appreciate it so i i very much look forward to having you on board for another episode in the not too distant future it'd be great to continue this conversation thank you albertus my pleasure Thank you for listening to the Do One Better podcast. If you want to find out more about our show, about our guests, additional links and resources, visit our website at liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I dot And don't forget, success at the Do One Better podcast is about inspiring you to be more philanthropic, to think more about sustainability, and to embrace social entrepreneurship. Hopefully, these stories will encourage you to take action and change the world around you for the better. <music>